and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by these two good-looking guys, Richard. Hello. <laughs> and Michael. Howdy. He couldn't get through it. No, uh, he couldn't do without That's a good look. And then, it, like, the laughs and the smile came, Michael. and he's like, oh. oh these uh, uh, wonderful... They have great personalities. These guys have a great personality. <laughs> and I've been proud to be a podcaster with them since the inception of audio, recorded audio. We've been doing it since... That's uh, true. Yeah. It's a um, we used to put, when we used to put on the wax cylinder. Put it on wax, as uh, Adam Yowler yeah. said. I don't know which boy of who was beastie said that but uh, uh well speaking of uh beastie boys or beastie persons or musical persons this time around the podcast we were talking about american bands the mount rushmore of american rock bands to be specific richard you chose it right i did and um i started thinking about it's just one of those ones where i started thinking about my first thought was just rock bands and then i realized okay three of the options are going to be the three options that everyone has all the time at the top three. And they're all British bands. Okay. Yeah. Beatles, Rolling Stones, the who you've got room for one more band basically. Yeah. Then I started thinking about well, what if we narrowed it down a little bit and removed all the British rock bands? Cause for whatever reason, there's a ton of great British rock bands, even though they're this tiny Island, mm -hmm. you know, the sun never sets on the British rock empire, I guess. Um, so I started thinking about American rock bands. And I think that that kind of brought up some interesting choices that you have to make. And what are the reasons why you're choosing them? Because it's not, maybe the bands aren't as iconic, iconic with a big eye as Beatles, Rolling Stones, bands like that. Mm -hmm. But I think you've still got some very interesting choices there. And, and you kind of have to decide for yourself what constitutes a rock band versus just a band. That's another yeah. aspect of it too. So. But yeah. there are a lot of different ways we could go with this. Cool. I think there's a lot, there's an onus on being from the place where it's from. Uh, not that the Beatles or, or uh, the Stones didn't have to be incredible, and not that they weren't, but they were, they weren't from the factory where it's all made. And, and I, I, I can see how that would be uh, just a different parameter. You always have to kind of go along with that or go against that, and it forms your sensibility, or at least it did probably in the early days of of the the genre. But uh, right. all right, Richard chose it, so Michael gets to go first. Uh, Okie dokie. My first band that I chose was the Beach Boys, and I think um, I chose them because uh, they had, like, kind of Richard alluded to, they had so much influence on. Um, how music was made like going forward. Um, I think that what the Beatles were for like a British sound, the Beach Boys kind of became like this kind of totem for what America kind of sounded like, at least for a short period of time. I think that you think of them and you think of them as very, very American and very Southern California and very... Uh, something that is so different than the rest of the world has. I think just that, you know, they sung about cars and girls and surfing and whatever at first. And then you get into, they started realizing or Brian Wilson started expanding what the music could be. They started expanding on what uh, the themes were of, of what he was writing about. And, you know, he goes and puts out um, pet sounds and that starts to influence the Beatles to a degree. And then he's, gets mired down with, um, you know, trying to uh, write Smile, and that becomes this big kind of 
thing that lingers over him for you know, over the band and over music for what 30 years or whatever. And I think that they are just, they kind of occupy this very iconic state. And I think sometimes when we talk about Mount Rushmore, we talk about not only something that is influential, but also iconic. And when you think of America or Americana or an idea of America, I think that they are kind of right in there as like an answer to what the Beatles were in a sense, but sounded totally different. I mean, it's not like this, it's not like anything sounded like their music didn't sound like rock and roll from six years before that really. And their music really didn't sound like anything uh, British either. It was very unique. I thought to their kind of time and place. Yeah, that's a great I didn't have them on my list because this was the one specifically where I was like, rock band? Or just great pop band? And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where I, where I feel, how I feel they fit into the spectrum of rock bands. Because, you know, when I think of the Beach Boys, I think of great pop songs. I don't necessarily think of them, I mean, they, they, started out at least with kind of the rock instrumentation and that sort of uh, feel to them, but they pretty quickly progressed away from that. And if you think about something like pet sounds, that's Baroque pop. That's not, that's not rock and roll necessarily. Well, then I so guess that's, we have- why, that's why I didn't have them on my list, even though I completely agree with everything you said about how influential they are and kind of the, you know, the boundaries that they pushed you know, I mean, they they pushed they put out Pet Sounds, and that pushed Paul McCartney to want to make Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, the the the, the friendly competition there, kind of pushing each other to to see what they could do in the the sphere of kind of pop music. So yeah, I completely I definitely... agree with everything you said, but I, I I just don't know that they're a rock band. I would definitely label them as rock because of their rock origins, and their touring show was always rock and roll based like their touring show was always they could seldom accomplish the the intricate i mean they could pull off intricate harmonies but i would i would definitely say if their inspiration was chuck berry meets the four freshmen then i think they have just a foundation in 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 rock and roll but like you said their journey took them into uh, very innovative places in in the, the studio and stuff like that so I think, um, I think that's a very yeah. interesting, well, you know, I didn't, so are there any bands that kind of stayed basically, there must be a lot that have stayed making the exact same thing over and over to a degree. Uh, maybe that began in that, that began in that era. I, I would not, so I'd say they either evolved or ended, but something like a, an ACDC that started at, you know, 20 years later. They there just, we go. Okay. They always stayed fundamentally the same. I think, there okay, were keyboards that, on one album. I think that's pretty interesting then. Then that idea of a band that was kind of nascent within the rock and roll genre and then kind of evolved early. They were in their early, you know, they had their feet in the door early on, so they could. So they, uh, versus a band who had decided, this is what I want, we want to sound like, and this is our sound. Yeah. Because they've had 20 years or 30 years or however many years of rock and roll. And the whole, you know, all of that uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I got to yeah, think about what, 
what I think is also interesting for me when the Beach Boys are analyzed, there was an interesting discussion about this kind of analog um, analysis of the Beach Boys and which Richard's evaluation kind of is one side of that is, is the, when the scene between rock started or evolved, it went between New York, uh, the East coast, West coast, and on the West coast was basically LA. And then in the late sixties, San Francisco started to be a real big scene and the real trippy progressive stuff was happening in San Francisco, which if you talk to somebody in San Francisco about the Beach Boys, they were just a candy pop rock kind of doofus act. And they were always embarrassed later on in their career to, to be evaluated as this kind of bubblegum pop kind of group or sunshine pop. And so I see what you're talking about, uh, Richard, there. But it's interesting to me uh, how rock and roll started to fragment into a critic's since Rolling Stone was in San Francisco, there were those critical darlings uh, of rock that existed in the West Coast. It'd be like a Grateful Dead and and the Dylan and folk rock people. Uh, and then there was like the folkies and the the rockers from the from Motown and and New York. But it is interesting to me how what is rock is also a really important question too because they would all probably be all on the rock charts i don't think there was no, i don't know if there was a pop rock chart at that time um so if it was just strictly through billboard maybe they would have been, have been on the, the charts it would have just been the hot 100 or whatever, the hot 100. Top 40 yeah so it just would have been top 40 yeah, yeah. we're so talking about uh, blended together one thing that i'd learned is after until the british invasion persons like our acts motown acts uh, groups like Sam and Dave or Sam Cooke or Otis Redding, they were on the rock chart. They had gone off the race uh, chart into the rock right. chart. And then when the British invasion came, there were so many new white acts that the chart went back to being uh, the rock, the rock, those acts all went back on the R&B chart. So those mm. acts did, which is, I think, fascinating because um, what is rock was even evaluated based on the color of the performer's skin. So, so, yeah. So that's an interesting thing too. Um, the amount of pop that is in your rock is uh, makes one evaluate. Yeah, right. is it? Is it? Is it? What is it? All right, Richard, what do you got? All right, so I'll give you a band. We were talking about bands whose sound didn't really evolve throughout their career, um, and East Coast versus West Coast. I'll go with an East Coast band, uh, the Ramones. Oh, sweet. Also on my uh, list. My second choice. Are, Wait, are the Ramones are a T-shirt you can get a Hot Topic. That's not really that's a true. band. Good no, part. it's it's actually they're actually called ramens. Ramens. And there's a big bowl of noodles <laughs> where the the eagle where the guitars should be. Oh, okay. No. Um. Look, incredibly influential. You know. You know. Basically. You know. I don't want to. I don't want to say started punk, but in terms of popular culture, they're probably the first band that you that that people you know back in the seventies were able to associate with punk rock and have breakthrough somewhat into the public consciousness you know they go in 1976 over to england to play a bunch of shows and that's where johnny rotten learns about punk rock and that's where joe strummer and mick jones go and see the show and get inspired to go start making more punk rock instead of you know joe strummer was in like a pub rock band basically before that um just 
this incredible mixture of kind of 60s bubblegum pop mm-hmm. and and you know early rock and roll but mixed with these really darkly funny lyrics and just just incredibly unique and i think really paved the way for so many other ba- so many other bands i mean they're just helping to launch the whole cbgb scene it's just it's hard to overstate their their influence on modern rock music and modern popular culture like you said there's still people kids who are you know weren't born when joey ramone died who are wearing ramones t-shirts i don't know that they know more than a couple of ramones songs but they know the band because the band has managed to live on you know well beyond you know what you would think a band that never made it even a dent in the pop charts would be able to have a legacy of they were able to accomplish that. Yeah. Do you think they innovated much? Like the thing of like the, the aesthetic they created, the attitude that they had seemed to synthesize what they liked about rock and roll. I think it's bullshit about rock and roll. I think they really pioneered finishing a set within 17 minutes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, playing, play, playing 10 songs uh, for, to completion as fast as you could and being off the stage, you can go drink some more beers. Yeah. I, think, I think no band has done it better. Yeah. Well, rock and roll I has think... always been a rebellion against um, authority, yeah. parents. R- Ramones were rebelling against rock and roll, all the bullshit that they'd seen happen. Yeah, they were rebelling against like the, you know, prog rock and, you know, Eagles and Steely Dan and that kind of, you know, if you want to call it bloated excess of rock music in the 1970s. You know, it was these songs are two minutes long. They've got great melodies. Get in, hit Mm -hmm. you hard, get out, bam, move on to the next song. So I don't know that they... I don't know that they innovated so much as they expertly synthesized a lot of what, like you said, a lot of what you, like, like you said, was they considered to be great about rock and roll and what rock and roll they thought should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The question I think is uh, within a certain era, um, nobody. Okay. When you think of the argument about Mike Love, um, hero or villain (laughs) um, is, Is every rock and roll's is every artist's job to innovate and to uh, break new ground, or or are they also entertainers whose job is just kind of go out and do that thing that people enjoy and please an audience? And I think Mike Love was the latter. Uh, he wasn't a musical genius, and at the beginning of the rock era, nobody was, and it wasn't even part of the job description. Like, <laughs> no, no, it, rock musicians weren't known, couldn't go sit in with the jazz trio. They weren't that good of a musician. They were building on forms that had already existed in R&B and and other things. So the idea that you would say, did the Ramones, were they musical uh, innovators? No, Uh, other than the tempo that they established and were able to maintain. It wasn't part of the job. The attitude was the part of the job. And, And that's what rock has always been built on is that attitude so there's a good there was a good picture of the ramones right there holding their holding their classic <laughs> surfboard. Oh, wait, their surfboard. <laughs> yeah uh um, and suffering suffering for their art if you think of like the um the 
mansion that uh, Brian Wilson lived in that kept him uh, separate from the world. You know, the Ramones were always plugging around in that van. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk. I mean, you know, talk about just the iconic nature of how they dress too. We're we're looking at these pictures that Jeff has pulled up. If you're watching like the YouTube feed, and you know, they're out there in a. Uh, you know, basically a uniform, the same way the Beatles used to dress all the four of them, the same thing, the way the Beach Boys would dress uh, similarly when they were on stage. But they they really like took whatever was like they established, um, um, you know, kind of this punk aesthetic or at least helped helped make it more mainstream, definitely. Um, Yeah. And make looking like, you know, like a cheap dirtbag. Cool. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean come so far from being so clean cut and, uh, you know, wearing nice suits on stage to uh, wearing shitty T-shirts and uh, leather jackets and uh, hair is covering most of our face. Yeah. Oh, it's like funny. That I was realizing that that uh, the image of uh, the group with Brian Wilson and uh, is the Pendletones, which was their name <laughs> before the Beach Boys, because they all mm-hmm. wore pen, the matching Pendleton shirts. So in a way, that that rock uniform uh, uh, was kind of, um, uh, yeah, something that they were they were establishing. The guy on the right, David Marks, I think, like one of yeah. their first guitarists, who uh, not Richard I, Marks, not Richard Marks. <laughs> uh, Murray Wilson tried to uh, sleep with his mom. Uh, <laughs> And uh, was not successful, so he wanted him to get kicked out of the band. Okay, so um, Michael, what's your second one? That was uh, Romans was also my second choice. Oh, sorry. Okay, cool, That's cool, cool. Okay, uh, then um, Michael, what's your third? No, my second. How do we do this? Okay, Richard, your there second. You go. Sorry. There we will get there. Okay. Um, my second choice, the Amer- the American Beatles. Mm, cheap, cheap trick. trick. Cheap trick. Yep. I mean, how could you forget? Can you honestly tell me you forgot, Jeff? You forgot the <laughs> magnetism of Robin Sandler, <laughs> oh, the charisma of Rick Nielsen. <laughs> I want you to want me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I just watched that movie the other day. That's so uh, good. Oh my god, Fast that times. movie is so perfect. Fast Times. Just he's so good. Mike Damone is so yeah. good. He's such a scumbag. Yeah, um, he's per- perfect as a scum scumbag. Rock you know, I. <laughs> Yeah, Rockford's Rockford, Illinois' finest band. You know, started off as a kind of just this workaday bar band that found a way to go to Japan and make it big and somehow parlay that into a 40-year rock and roll hall of fame career. Um they were to me, I mean the, the American Beatles thing obviously was something that the Japanese press kind of coined and and went with. But it's earned to some extent, I think, because they, their sense of melody is pretty unmatched in terms of major rock bands, just from a musical standpoint. I mean, the way they were able to fuse kind of glam rock and hard rock with these Beatles sensibilities and sense of melody was something that no other bands were really doing back in the 70s. And I think you can, you know, there's a reason why every band's all the way from like the glam rock bands of the 80s to Smashing Pumpkins, you know, so many bands have listed Cheap Trick as one of their major influences. Yeah. And the fact that they've been doing it for this long 
and Rick Nielsen hasn't run out of guitar picks yet. It's just <laughs> an amazing accomplishment how many he's thrown into the crowds <laughs> over the years. No, just the fact that they've listen. I listened to the last Cheap Trick record that came out a year or two ago. It's fantastic. So many of these bands have turned into legacy bands where they mm-hmm. just have no interest in putting out new music, or if they do, it's just kind of like this throwaway kind of sounds exactly like the last album that they put out. And Cheap Trick are still pushing themselves. They're still yeah. making great music. Even now, 40 years from, from when they started, when they there's absolutely no need for them to do that. I mean, they're still touring 200 days a year and, you know, and everything from major stadiums to county fairs. They're just fascinating to me that they're just sort of, I think when, when the nuclear war happens, there will be, you know, cockroaches, Twinkies and cheap trick <laughs> playing a county fair somewhere. I think they were like, I, I remember kiss there's um, in, in, uh, surrender they've got my kiss records on yeah oh, wait yeah yeah my and, kiss records out yeah. yeah my kiss records out and i remember gene simmons was talking about we love cheap trick they're the only guys that we love touring with if we feel like they could put on a, as big a show as we did and they put on as graphic like a cheap trick always had a very grab with the courier font like an old typewriter font they always had a very graphic presentation um they always had they always package their rock in a really cool visual way that looked great on an LP. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, you had the you had the heartthrobs in front with Rick, yeah. uh, with Robin Zander and and Tom Peterson. Yeah. Then you had the dorks in the back with uh, Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos. Yeah, stick John I mean, Wayne they, Gacy they, in the behind the drums there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically looking like an accountant mm-hmm. behind <laughs> the drums. I, I I love the thing that they would do where he would at some point during the show break out these like five foot long guitar uh, or drumsticks and start using them to play a solo <laughs> just little things like that and rick nelson yeah. basically being a a bowery boy i mean he yeah he, he kind of manufactured his stage presence off of hunts hall yeah which is kind of an obscure thing to uh to be if you're if you want to be a rock star but somehow it all works out mm-hmm. yeah a lot yeah a lot of fun there was a the one dude that was kind of way way ahead of our time in school who was the guy who always had the concert tickets. He was kind of the Mike Damone of, <laughs> of uh, Shawnee Mission East. Um, he was a huge Cheap Trick fan. And uh, he, he just kind of was was tapped into what they had to offer when everybody else was kind of listening to other dumb, dumb, dumb stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. You know what's funny about rock and roll is the – think of like how many songs uh, – springsteen has about you know glory days or age aging out of being a kid but still knowing that uh uh or or you know seeger saying rock and roll never forgets you know a song like surrender saying mommy's all right daddy's all right that just seemed a little bit weird (laughs) yeah Uh, the idea that you know hey man it's okay to grow old you know just don't give away your dreams don't give away that don't give away the rock you know you can be an old fart and still still having fun it seems like they're living that life you know they're still they're still doing it, you know, even exactly. though they're a little bit weird. So and a little bit old. A little bit old. And then I think Rick Rick is selling all his guitars at every stop. Every every tour. Yeah. You can come you can come backstage before the show and buy his guitars because he well, he's got them. like five hundred of them. Yeah. So I don't think he's gonna miss a couple here and yeah. there. Yeah, like any one neck re- guitars. Sorry, no, sorry, no not, one neck guitars. They're all five, five neck guitars. Five, six, got those. Yeah. <laughs> 
in yeah. spades. Yeah. Okay, so this is our halftime. Mm. And this is if it was if it's a Super Bowl, this is when a big rock show would happen, right? I mean, it would be something amazing. Um, like Rihanna. Who, who, like Rihanna. I'm Snoopy. <laughs> like Rihanna. Snoopy celebrates America. <laughs> oh, man. I was looking at Super Bowl halftime shows <laughs> from the 70s. And it was like, up with people. Oh, or, yeah. Um, it was like... like uh, Tribute to uh, Magic. Mitch Miller. Blackstone Jr. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Elvis Presto. But like then it's just like, like Woody Herman. The Woody Herman quintet. Like jazz? <laughs> jazz was playing at the Super Bowl? Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, download, rate, and review past episodes. And we have a lot of them. And but we would love if you had a suggestion for a future episode just to contact us through one of our many socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Truth Social? Are we still on that? Periscope. The Vine? <laughs> Foursquare. <laughs> MySpace? Hit up our guest. We're on all. Uh, We're on. Uh, come on, hit, hit us on Classmates. We are yeah. on all deleted apps only. Adobe Instant Messenger. We are only on these things. They you can reach us Messenger. through. Um, you can reach us through Amazon's rate and review function. If you yeah. just, um, uh, if you happen to uh, <laughs> download our uh, podcast, uh, just rate and review. Yeah. Did you did you like this? We'll send seven follow up emails as well <laughs> uh, that you'll all ignore. Uh, I love yes. it when they they give you the option. Uh, do you like this or love it? Or do you love this thing or or don't like it? And it's like, well, I don't love this thing. So I'm going to press like, I don't like it. And they're like, why don't you love yeah. it? It's like, well, don't give me that option. <laughs> How about that? How about let's not go, like so, a... don't go so hard on me, Amazon, note... for like this pot holder. It's just a fucking pot holder. <laughs> deal with it. a note that we get past. I, would, I never got these notes passed, but I, would, I mm. knew of them that we get passed. Do you like me? Yes or no? It's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, who are you? I don't know. You sit behind me. Hey, Richard, uh, I, I, I want to bring something up real quick. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, Cheap it. Tricks, five foot long drumstick mm -hmm. deal. Uh, have you been noticing, uh, sorry, to, sorry to turn this into a sports podcast for a second. Have you been noticing or watching any games um, in and around Dodger Stadium uh, over the last year or so? I've noticed it in the last like few months. People are showing up to Dodgers games with gigantic gloves. Oh yeah, we went to a game I, uh, earlier this year, uh, and uh, yeah, there were multiple Michael Winfield-sized giant gloves. Thank you, thank you uh, for branding it the, the proper way. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, back in the day, I wanted to try to sew together and build a gigantic baseball glove that would be the size to catch a <laughs> kickball. I never oh, yeah. got around to doing it, but it was just one of my uh, harebrained ideas. And so I see these giant baseball mitts in the stadium, and I think, God damn, I get another one. <laughs> Another one lost. Uh, what does that make it easier to catch a ball? Is that what? No, of course it not. Would, no, right? no, no way. You ended up breaking your wrist. You ended up obscuring yeah. your, or things like it would catch and then flap the person behind mm -hmm. brutally. Yeah. It's like trying to catch something with a pillowcase, right? Wouldn't it be tough? No, oh, Richard, we should have done pillowcases. Michael, yeah, what's your third one? My third, third choice. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it back around. All right. Sure. Out of halftime. Sure. Uh, we're half into time. the first encore, right? If you're yeah. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First sure. encore. Uh, my third choice is REM. And I don't oh. know. We're talking about. Got... Go ahead. All right. Smash oh, Mouth. Okay. Sorry. I got to backspace. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I don't know. Like I've been trying to think of when, when we were coming up with like this list, I was trying to think of things that were like uh, influential the same way that like the Ramones were influential, the same way that the Beach Boys were quasi influential. But I think REM has kind of exists in the same sort of space where they're these kind of um, alt rock, you know, pre indie rock, uh, uh, it's definitely still rock and roll, but with all these other influences because of everything that's come before, um, but really went on to really uh, influence like the kind of the huge alternative scene of like the late eighties, early nineties, I think in a way that um, I don't know if bands like um, uh, I'm just trying to think of it. I don't think that there are bands that would have dominated so much in like the MTV late eighties, early nineties era, and even into the two thousands without these guys from Atlanta, Georgia, just um, putting on a masterclass of innovation and putting out different music and uh, uh, having gigantic hits as well that I don't know. I think, I think they are so unique within rock and roll that they, I think it is, I think we can't talk about whatever rock became in the nineties without what they were putting down in the early eighties, whether, you know, bands like pavement came out or even um, uh, kind of even more like weird, like comedy stuff, like kind of like they might be giants and things. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there is an influence there with REM that is so deep. And even like their later albums, um, like New Adventures in Hi-Fi and uh, what was that? What was that? Like Stop? Yeah. I mean, those were all, they were just, they were just like really solid rock albums. And I think it's really interesting that Michael Stipe, after they broke up in like 2011, he's so, he was so dominant for so long or so influential for so long that um, it's kind of faded off so much. Like he's, he did it and he's, he hasn't like, he's not one of these guys that has clinged on trying to relive like a past glory. He's like, he's all, all written out. I mean, I I think he's doing like photography and painting and contributing music, but very under, you know, under the radar sort of thing. I don't know. You don't see, you don't see that often with um, rock and roll stars as big as he was. Yeah. REM, the weirdest band ever to become one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. You know, like it's the fact that at one point they were, you know, on MTV every 20 minutes and you couldn't, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting one of their videos um, is really just remarkable because they were uncool. They're from this, you know, Athens, Georgia, this place, the only other that, the only other band that people in the mainstream knew about was an even weirder band, the (laughs) B-52s. Um, and yet somehow they became, like I said, able to sell out stadiums. And I think it's a testament to just the quality of the music and the, you know, the, boy, you want to talk about being on a heater, that kind of run that they had with a green automatic and then time out of mind and automatic for the people. That's a three album stretch that I would put up against pretty much any band's three album stretch anywhere I, I would i would even go to extend it to uh, monster that came out a few years after where 
sure. That sounded so wildly different than what they were doing a couple years before. This really kind of, it was so much heavier, uh, sonically so different. It was a lot fuzzier sort of sound that was like, but it was very distinctively like REM still. It was so weird and different and they just kind of changed what they did. And I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about how bands have like evolved. And I think this is definitely a band that uh, had the wherewithal to start out as one thing and evolve into something else, but still sound like REM all the way through. Yeah, I totally agree. It does feel like it's ice can, when you talk about progenitors, I think you see, I don't see Kurt Cobain. I don't see grunge happening without that. It just seemed like a thing with like the Ramones too. Like, I don't yeah. think any of that comes out without both of those bands specifically. Yeah. 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 This seems like an art. A, I was going to say my third choice is a band that Nirvana specifically would reference as a key sort of building block for them. And this is my kind of indie rock choice and it's the Pixies. Oh, okay. You know, a band that, that sort of innovated the, the kind of sonic change that kind of loud, quiet, loud sort of, you know, mindset. And even to this day, I I I know they're the the old. I don't know. I don't think I'm guessing neither, neither of us have Velvet Under Underground on our list. But there's that saying that Velvet Underground sold what twenty five thousand copies, and every band that every person who bought a copy of it started a band. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Pixies are kind of the modern version of that, except they sold more albums. <laughs> and because I can listen, I listen to modern rock music today on the, on, you know, Sirius XMU or something like that. And there are times where bands come on and I think, is that a Pixies song that I just don't know? Mm-hmm. No, it's a, mm-hmm. a, a current song. And so much of the kind of sonic adventures that, that, that Black Francis and, and the rest of them kind of took you through are relevant to what bands are making today. I wish I was more knowledgeable. Yeah, I think the Pixies are one that is a band that I recognize as good, but I just I just haven't put in the hours to listen to it. And like I don't know if it's just um because it just didn't hit at the right time for me. Yeah. But oh go ahead. No, no, that's go ahead. No, I was gonna say it could be the, the fact that Lyrically, I still don't know what pretty much any Pixie song is about. <laughs> and I've heard pretty much all of them multiple times, and I've kind of tried to figure it out. I don't, I don't know, man. Frank Black's just sort of like singing about stuff that's, you know, maybe religious, but possibly mm-hmm. not. Maybe, you know, like Here Comes Your Man, you know, sounds like a kind of probably as straight of a rock song as they've ever done. Turns out it's about an earthquake hitting in a homeless encampment or something like that, or forest fires or something like that. Like, it's, it's, it's all kind of vague when he explains it. So I don't even know that Frank Black knows exactly what most Pixie songs are about, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but that's still, you know, they were, the, the, the case for them I would make is that they were David Bowie's favorite band. Bowie thought they were the most innovative rock band that was, was going in the, in the 80s and the 90s. And if Bowie thinks you're innovative, I think that's a pretty high stamp of approval. Absolutely. That's funny. If if this were a uh, discussion of electronic rock or or whatever, Bowie would be um, 
somebody who people say like is influenced by a guy like Gary, Gary Newman or something like crop. They like craft work and they like, like Bowie. So he's definitely an influencer. <clears throat> so last, uh, wait, so who is that? Is that Michael? Michael what's your last one? Last one. My last one. And it might seem um, kind of goofy. Uh, I, I will defend Pearl Jam as their, uh, so the last is one of like the last, like great American rock bands. I don't know if that have had such a impact kind of socially. I mean, I think there's probably been bands that have, you know, played bigger shows, but I, I Pearl Jam is, has become one of these kind of legacy bands that you re referred to earlier, um, Richard, where yeah. um, they are so dedicated to the art of rock and roll and playing rock and roll live and just touring the hell out of, the world constantly um i um coming up we're gonna go see like the cure um uh they have this big tour that's going on and uh they're another like the big ball? yeah they're this no, so's a so's a so's apollo and uh and uh sarah oh when which uh which we're going on I, tuesday i don't remember they're, they're like oh they're, they're going anyway. on tuesday too anyway oh. I'll, have, I'll send her a message um uh but they're this band that plays these like the cure uh pro jam goes out and plays these super long intense very varied sets uh eddie vetter writes a new set list every night they go out and play something different they tailor each show which is just insane i mean they have you know, 30 years of music to put, to put out and refer back to and pull from. And um, I think as like a touring rock band, I think that there's still no one that feels as big as them. And I, it kills me that I've never seen them in concert. Um, but just going back to them in general, they came out of obviously this, you were labeled like this grunge sort of band. I, no one really knows what that was other than some uh, kind of corporate branding sort of thing. And within a few years, they were like, became these people that were like rebelling against. I think they've always been like this kind of um, kind of post-punk sort of rock band that never really enjoyed being labeled anything that a corporation or MTV or whoever wanted to put on them. Um, and that feels very rock and roll. I mean, to the point that they pulled away from like doing tours with Ticketmaster that they're just like, nope, we're, we're going to, another thing that kind of made me think about them um, going to see the cure who's had this big battle with Ticketmaster too. But as a band that was like, you were either in like the Pearl Jam side of thing or the Nirvana side of thing in, you know, like 1991 or has been very enduring about them, um, even when the music kind of fell off in the later years. Man, I was so anti-grunge. I was so like, it was like, one, I was Seattle, just mad. <laughs> well, I was so mad. I was just mad that like, like, uh, I don't know, when I, when I was a kid, all we had was torn ass jeans and shitty flannel shirts. <laughs> and then, right. you know, you had to have an eyes on, you had to have khakis, you had to have this and that. And like, I was so mad that all of a sudden everybody got to dress shitty and, um, <laughs> you know, not shave, grow up their hair. Like, oh, damn it. 
was so mad at that. And be vegetarian? Come on, that's too far. All right, uh, Richard, what's your final choice? All right, I figured that it it was important to have some representation from thrash metal because I think that's one of the one of the really prime American creative <clears throat> music genres in, in terms of rock. So I had to go with one of the big four thrash metal bands. So of course it's Dave Matthews band. No. Just oh, it's Metallica. It's okay. Starship. It's Metallica. There you go. Had it you you were typing that in before I even I was, it wasn't name. Slayer. I didn't know it was Metallica. Wasn't Anthrax, wasn't Megadeth. It, wasn't it had to be no. Metallica. No, the, the they were the the band that broke through. They're the band that made it made it big out of out of the big four um, were willing to adapt their style to a more mainstream audience while still with the, like like the black album still maintaining the core essence of what made Metallica Metallica and maybe this just says something about me but again they were a band that to my ears at least cared more about melody than maybe a lot of their their peers even though they were playing 200 beats per minute there is still something melodic happening, and there was a there were tunes that you could really kind of hang your hat on. And again, a really strange choice to become one of the biggest bands in the world. But you know, you look back to the early to mid, you know, the mid nineties. You know, Metallica is all over MTV, and they're all over rock radio and alternative rock radio, and even though they were this, you know, thrash heavy metal band and i know that they've kind of become a punching bag now because of you know some kind of monster and you know that that whole documentary that kind of maybe cast them in some maybe not the most rock and roll light and maybe some of their most recent albums have been kind of disappointing and there there's the whole collaborate collaborating with lou reed and creating whatever the hell that was incident but from what i can tell they're still a ferocious as a live band and you know they've, they've been doing it for 30 plus years and they're still out there out there you know melting faces <laughs> no no not in that was not an intentional joke about james hatfield almost getting burned to death on stage by the way. sweet all right great choices great choices gents uh, the Mount Rushmore of American rock bands. I think we kind of, it's interesting because when you talk about what, like, what is important, uh, which bands are important, you kind of start to kind of have an idea of like what rock is and what it means to people and, and what it does and what its job is and stuff like that. So, so cool. So why don't we uh, go with this? Boom, boom. Let's go with this list. Boom. Let's go with Beach Boys. Let's go with, Ramonis, let's go with the cheap trick and let's go with REM. All right, I These, can live with that. Look at yeah, that, sitting, sitting right solid. up on the Mount Rushmore. Okay, that's a solid right. four. Okay, all right. No um, creed, but you know, we had to make it cut it off somewhere. No creed. Uh, sorry, Rob Stapp. Is he still alive? Do you think Scott, Scott Stapp? Stapp. Um, Scott Stapp, yeah, yeah, I think he's trying to make another comeback. Good luck, buddy. good for him. Good yeah, go for it. All right, this is you can <laughs> you can do it. This has been the uh, Mount Rushmore of American Rock. I'm always Jeff. I'm Richard. Bye bye. Battle finger.